there's a risk, like I said before, in existing social and structural inequalities just being reinforced further through this space. And I feel like that risk is there, but on the flip side of that is a huge potential to actually redress and change some of those (laughs) social structures and entrenched disadvantage that exists in the way society works. That's one thing that fascinates me, I suppose, about the data world is to every risk and opportunity, there's almost a balance, a seesaw, where the same thing that's a risk is also an opportunity. The same thing that's an opportunity can also be a risk. It's about how we navigate that. I think it's about who we talk to to understand that and how we think critically and step back, understand and learn more and more as we go forward. Hi, I'm Christy. I'm Adam, and you're listening to The Foil Podcast. Where we talk about the opportunities and the risks of the data age. What it means for you and what it might mean for us all. Tamsin Corin Wiley, thank you so much for joining us here on The Foil. It's so exciting to have you on. You've been a good friend and partner of ours for a little while now, and we've done some really great work together, and it's amazing to have you on. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to be doing the work that you're doing? Thanks, Adam, and it's, it's great to be here. When I first graduated from uni, I graduated with a teaching degree, and I was a high school teacher for a few years. In that scenario, I very quickly became interested in the education system as a whole. And I was looking at how kids were affected as they were coming into that system from primary school into high school. And at first that led me to be interested in working with the students who were falling between the cracks a bit in that system. So I transitioned then, first of all, into working with Australian Red Cross, working on community programs and particularly programs with young people who were disengaged from education. And then through that, I, again, was sort of interested in the system and how that worked. And I had always had an interest in international development as well. So an opportunity came up to work for the Australian Agency for International Development. And I went and did that for five years and mainly focusing on work on their Myanmar program. And that included working in Canberra, but also then overseas in Myanmar. I was fortunate enough to be posted there. And in that context, we worked broadly on education system reform and also increasing primary school education, enrollment and attendance rates all throughout Myanmar. And my particular area was working in with communities in the conflict zones around the edges of Myanmar. And yeah, so around in those zones, there's education systems that have grown up um, outside of the government controlled areas and are reaching some of the children who are the most disadvantaged and the poorest. Um, And we were doing some work to support the education in those areas. And then I came home and worked in the private sector for a while, international development, and then also the um, in the community sector again. And then that led me to working at Logan Together in Collective Impact, which is where we connected. That's such a wild journey. I wonder, um, as you were working in Myanmar to help improve the education system over there, there must have been so many things that you learned, obviously, and picked up that you were then maybe able to apply in the Australian context. I think that's, you know, in Australia, we don't imagine ourselves as being in war zones as such, although there's probably plenty of parents out there who would relate to that idea more deeply. What were you able to, what were some of the interesting ways in which you were able to bring home lessons from Myanmar and apply them here? I feel like that was probably where I first truly understood the value of place-based work. Um, 
being in a very different context and being a guest in a country and a, a culture that was very different from my own made me understand the necessity to develop approaches organically from the place and from the the culture and the context in order for those to, I think, have sustainable impact and that applying what might work in one context, you can certainly take lessons from it, but it isn't, you can't cut and paste from one place to another. So I think that was probably the one of the biggest lessons. Um, also just the amount of time that it takes for community change, especially if you're looking for long-term population level change to take to um, occur, and that's short funding cycles of a few years. While they certainly can have a benefit to really create lasting change, it's a long-term process. So I've heard a little bit about the ethos, if you like, of place-based work. You've said it has to do with uh, taking approaches that organ- are taken organically from place. How do you? How does a place-based initiative, a place-based organization, or project work? How does it come? together? What does it look like? I feel like it varies again, depending on the place, but there's certain principles that would be followed. And I I don't consider myself an expert on place-based work, but what I have observed is there's certain principles that are generally followed. And again, that is um, building for context, uh, people who are in that environment leading that change, working to tailor responses to that particular context and taking a long-term perspective as well and working across different population groups that live in that place. So instead of, say, targeting a program to a particular demographic or a particular need, then it's instead looking at that place more holistically and all the different things that exist there. And while one initiative may not be able to address all of them, it's looking at it in that bird's eye view and seeing how the systems work as well. Place-based work and funding reform is really on the agenda in Australia and globally, isn't it? And many government departments at federal and state levels in Australia are funding place-based work in many communities all over Australia. As how does it how is it different from funding programmatically? So in my experience, uh, working in a place-based context, there are a few key differences that are different from funding programmatically. And I would say those are one of those is looking at the objectives that want to be achieved in that place that ideally the community has come up with and looking at, okay, so what does the funding model need to look like to like to support that? Instead of going, we've got funding for two years, it's what does this community need? Is it a 10-year funding window, for example? and trying to adjust funding systems and funding flows to meet that. I feel like also when you're funding programmatically, you're funding exactly that, a program. So it might be a program that works with, say, increasing early childhood kindergarten enrollment. Whereas when you're funding place-based, that might be one of the things that you're doing, but the funding is not going to be, it'll be looking at as a piece in the puzzle rather than the funding being designed around a particular program that is being implemented. And also there's a higher level of flexibility in my experience. So how potentially how you get to those population level changes or whatever your objectives are, there may be more flexibility in that from the funders um, and also f- support to systems level change and system reform, I feel like has been different to a programmatic response where you might be working within a system and you're trying to maybe redress some of the impacts that are unfair of that system. 
but you're not necessarily working to change the system. Whereas I found that the funding support in a place-based context is actually looking at that as an objective and looking at the whole complex web of what is what will create change in that place or not and going outside of an A to B programmatic approach. We hear about systems change a lot in the work that we do. And what does it really mean? There's lots of different academic models of what systems change is that I could refer to. The way I would probably describe it is if you imagine a cobweb with a spider in it, every time the spider takes a little step, the impact of that goes around the cobweb. And if something else lands in the cobweb, that's going to affect the spider as well. So it's that the system is what's there, we're in it, whether we're conscious of that or not, we're influencing it and being affected by it. And it might be a system such as an education system, a health system, or it could be all of those things together. It might be, we would look in a place based the, into the service system, for example. So there's many systems, they're layered on each other and changing them would mean looking at how those systems interact with the people who live there and how you might change those. So changing a funding flow could be an example of system change. Changing... Um, what does that mean? So what's an example of that? So how, for example, how the health system maybe funds its work, if that changes and goes from one model to another, that might be diff- uh, an example of systems change. It's a reform process. I think it's step by step. It might be a policy change that then flows down into the way people act in a system. So if there's a change in education policy, that can be a systems change because then in the implementing of that there's changes in the education system and how it works. It could be shifting mindsets. We talk about shifting mental models a lot. So actually shifting how people think and how they interact with the system and conceptualize it is another big part because it's not an easy thing to do, but it's definitely possible, but it takes working differently to do it. It seems like such a natural thing to do, such a natural way to approach trying to improve outcomes to recognize that there is a, a, a complex and dynamic system at work there that you need to work with and respect rather than taking the kind of idealistic approach of just providing a program or service that you know, will be the same everywhere and you know therefore effective really nowhere. I'm really interested to find out about how are you applying that in your work after that point? Yeah, so after the international development and other work back home is when I work started moving into the data and monitoring evaluation and learning space in a in local together, so in a place-based collective impact initiative. And I feel like probably the most immediate difference that I noticed there is that we were always relating back to the big picture. So we were constantly moving from practical, the practical implementation of what we're doing back to the system and thinking about how all those things were interrelated and affected. And trying one of the biggest questions that we have and is still being figured out in place-based initiatives you know, across Australia and collective impact across Australia is how do you actually understand and measure systems change? What does it look like? What's the evidence for when it's happened? And it's not something that there's a clear-cut approach to at the moment. So we were in the process of trying to observe what we thought were uh, examples of system change and also trying to work with other practitioners to understand or come up with tangible ways to measure system change. And that was with, as you said, with Logan Together. What was the work of Logan Together more broadly? Logan Together is a collective impact initiative that focuses on children zero to eight and improving their 
childhood development outcomes. And the initial idea was to set out to ensure that Logan children were as happy, as healthy, as full of potential as any other children in Queensland. And Tamsin, you know, it's fascinating to me because the Logan Together initiative is one of the largest collective impact initiatives in Australia. I mean, really, it's covering a huge geographic area and population. There's more than 300,000 people who live in Logan. And there are so many different dynamics in that city, really. How do you scale the kind of work you were doing in a, in a place like that? Yeah, it's a good question. And when I was working there, that was something that's a, a constant question of do you go broad or deep or broad and deep in particular locations? And I don't feel like there's a clear answer on how you scale I, that I've observed on how you scale in that context. I think it's something that when I was there, we were still trying to figure out um, and what the best approach was, whether it's best to maybe focus in more deeply on a few communities first, as well as doing some things across the whole of Logan. But it's certainly not possible with the um, I guess this the scale of the initiative as it was to work at the same level of tens- intensity across that whole big area. And whether that's even desirable or not um, is another question. In the monitoring and evaluation work with data, what kind of data were you using in application to that at Logan together? And did that have some sort of bearing on the question of broad or deep? Yeah, absolutely. So the kind of data that Logan together used varied. Initially, there was quite a lot of work invested into understanding the contextual data, so the demographic data, what was happening in the place, um, understanding the landscape, I guess, of the people who were there and the, the children in particular, and keeping an eye on that population level change, but also then looking more broadly, we would draw on data from, sorry, more specifically on data from the Australian Early Development Census, for example. And then, of course, the programs themselves that are all part of the initiative are generating data. And then there's evaluations that were done also. So it's typically population level data or cohort level information that we're trying to understand the impact of the work that was happening and also the broader how the context is evolving in Logan, whether that's linked to the work of Logan together or not. We would definitely be keeping an eye on that. Um, But around the time that I was just finishing up, there's a much more of a uh, move to looking at the contribution of the actual initiative and linking, doing analysis to link changes to the initiative if they're there or not and understanding that more. Mm. And what were some of the challenges maybe that you were encountering as you were trying to pull these different data sources together for that purpose? There's lots of different challenges. Um, I feel like some of them on a day-to-day basis, I guess one of the biggest challenges practically is access to data, particularly government-held population level data or government-held data in general. Um, There's much more data that the community services and social sector would be able to use than what's actually available publicly. Uh, That was an ongoing challenge. The challenge also, I guess, of fragmentation within the government and the data custodians being quite siloed. So it's quite even, it's not that you can just go to one central area, make a data sharing agreement with them and then get that data. It would be 
department by department, which is quite a huge undertaking and quite time consuming. I feel like other challenges probably, and these are more higher level, is actually what data is collected and whose perspective or whose profile that represents, who's missed out of that, is what's collected actually even what the community is interested in knowing. Um, There's a whole, I feel like data, like most things, reflects the power structures that already exist in a place. And often it's underpinned by a historical, a colonial, patriarchal, approach, which is the way that, which is everywhere in the systems and data does isn't separate from that. So trying to look at ways to not be too limited by that, while at the same time having limited capacity to collect our own data is a challenge and something, I think a big learning too. So I feel like for everybody working in the data space who is from a European background, who's used to working in this system, there's lots of challenging questions that we need to confront about what we're actually perpetrating potentially by using data in that space and also lots of opportunities to do it better and differently. So bringing in different cultural perspectives and different voices. And I feel like that's a huge opportunity and a challenge when a lot of the data that is available, even if we could get it, is probably not going to be particularly representative or equitable or strength-based in how it's collected. It's often deficit data. Yeah, it only tells part of the story. We hear this a lot, that it's a deficit story. It's not representative of the story we really understand about our community and, and the story we want to tell. How do you think that is shifting? How are communities claiming the story and the narrative in the future that they want to tell with data? So I feel like there's lots of movement in that space and I don't feel like I can speak on behalf of those communities. I can just ex- uh, relate what I've probably observed. I think that through there's definitely a growing awareness of the power of data and more of a demand to be involved in that process. So to be involved in the process of collection, the process of identifying what success or change looks like in a particular place-based initiative or more broadly. And I feel like there's an evolution in the data space, which is a great thing of chat being challenged more on some of the status quo approaches to how data is used, how it's collected and the story that it, that it tells. I feel like bringing in story more explicitly has been something that um, particularly in our work in Logan Together, that was definitely a call for that, that seeing the value in story is not just to bring in the qualitative and the quantitative together rather than relying just on one or the other and bringing a wider group of people also into the interpretation of that data. So it's not just what's collected and how, but what does it mean? And and when somebody's looking at the data and making interpretation, there's an awful lot of power in that because you're then saying, this is what this data is saying. Whereas somebody else looking at it through a different lens with different experiences might say, actually, no, that's not how I would understand the story of that data. So I think there's a call for bringing more perspectives into how data is collected, what's collected and how it's interpreted and the meaning that is made from that data. What were some of the data that was being collected and presented that wasn't interesting or was not you know, a part of the way that, that community wanted to describe and speak about themselves? And then what also could have been collected or could be being collected that would answer some of the questions that the community was really interested in? I feel like the deficit approach that Christy mentioned before is one of the things that came up quite a lot. So Logan is an incredibly vibrant community 
with such diversity. There's so much happening there. It's really an amazing place. But if you look at the data that's collected in terms of um, that population level data, it is that paints a picture of potentially of lack of deficit as as seen as maybe behind in some way. And while, yes, that data is useful in identifying need, it's not the whole picture. And that was something that was definitely highlighted. I need to move away from a fairly disempowering picture of all the problems that are there. And yes, there are problems that are genuine problems, but there's strength there too in order to be able to address those problems, which probably wasn't being picked up in that data collection and bringing through story, for example, or looking at what are the other pieces of data that the community might prefer to be captured to build a more holistic picture. That's certainly, I think, there was certainly shifting as I was finishing up there to focus more on that and redefining what data the community wants to collect. And that question is be in a process of being asked at the moment. So Tamsin, where did your fascination with data come from to begin with? And what was it that drew you towards now data science in your new career path? So I've actually thought about this a fair bit and tried to reflect on what drew me to it. And I think like most things, it's a combination of different factors. But in summary, I feel like the work that I did do in the collective impact space exposed me probably to the power, really the power and potential of data and also to new technologies that I hadn't worked with before. So I hadn't worked with machine learning or AI before. And so I began to engage on those on the technological side of those and also the, I guess, sociological side of those technologies. And I just find it utterly fascinating. And I and I feel that, as you describe in the description of your podcast, we are in the data age and it's profoundly, there's a profound potential in data and data science at the moment, profound risk and profound questions that I feel like actually are the big questions that humans ask need to ask about society and change in general. And data is an opportunity to ask those questions and to work through those in a way that has real impacts on a wide range of people. So we're all interacting with data at the moment. It, we're all being affected by it. Um, we're all benefiting from it, perhaps also experiencing some of the less beneficial side effects of this data age. And to me, there's probably no other place that I'm more interested in exploring at an intellectual level and also a practical level of how this actually impacts people and how we can shape. So I feel like we're in a moment in time. And I don't, I've heard some people say, I think the horse has bolted in terms of AI and, and data science and the data age. I don't th- agree with that in terms of, I think we still have a lot of power to shape how the data age looks going forward and how that changes, how people benefit from that, that and how social change can come about as a result of harnessing those technologies and using them in better ways. And I also think it, data science and AI forces us to, or it should force us to be introspective, to look at the power structures that are underlying everything that we do, to question our own privilege, our own biases, and make sure that we're doing that in our work and supporting others to do that too. So to me, it's just the, an absolutely um, fascinating and timely place to be if you, there's any interest in driving value for business and society at the moment and the human experience, really. 
What are some of the risks and opportunities that you're speaking of that you are really motivated by and that motivated you to make the jump then from collective impact into data science? Because I don't imagine that's a path that you've seen many other people take. Um, no, not so far. But I, I know that uh, the data space is probably broadening from a purely technological domain. And the um, necessity of people from various different backgrounds working in that space is is definitely a thing. I haven't specifically seen someone jump from collective impact to data science, but um, it's not a huge jump given the work that the I was doing in that space too. We were quite in the forefront in a, in a way of using data in in the social sector. Um, in terms of the risks and opportunities, look, there's there's so many. And it, again, it would be depend on for whom, um, as well as in general. There's definitely opportunities to, if we're, if we're continuing to, to focus on the, the social and societal change and reform space, there's absolutely opportunities to use that technology to make changes, perhaps to understand the situation, the context better, to know what occurs when we do one thing, what's the outcome over here. There's opportunities to take those technologies like machine learning and AI into the social change space, like the work that we did with a machine learning model around early education supply and demand. So that's using a technology then that would help inform the people working in that space um, to, you know, it's just one other avenue of information to engage with, to help you understand the context. I think there's a great potential in if more people can have access to data and can understand this space, therefore there's an ability to democratize the data space, which would could have great potential for putting power into the hands of people who potentially traditionally haven't had access to data, I think as it's becoming more widespread. I know that through the sort of through the work that you do, there's opportunities there. I think some of the benefits we don't even know yet because the technology is evolving so quickly. So it's partly about staying engaged and staying across what's happening and then looking for opportunities to apply those technologies in a wide range of different spaces. Um, you know, community development is not traditionally somewhere where you might think AI would be applied, but it's about thinking outside that box and looking for those um, opportunities. In terms of risks, there's the obvious ones that uh, are important and are increasingly widely spoken about around bias, ethics, uh, looking at unintended consequences of when we train a machine to do something. We may not um, always understand the impacts of that then on the people that are interacting with that. I've also heard, you know, the, there's the risk of we're training a machine to do something, but it's it's not going to be doing it with the same level of consciousness that we are. So whatever we put into it, it'll just do that. And it, um, there could be a risk of well, how will that actually play out? Because it's not going to stop and sit back and go, well, this isn't where we thought it was going to go. And I think that there's a risk, like I said before, in existing social and structural inequalities just being reinforced further through through um, this space as it is a risk in any space. And I feel like the, that risk is there, but it's on the flip side of that is a huge potential to actually redress and change some of those social structures and um, entrenched disadvantage that exists in the way society works. So it's, that's one thing that fascinates me, I suppose, about the data world is there's almost this to every risk and opportunity, there's almost a, see a balance, a seesaw, where the same thing that's a risk is also an opportunity. The same thing that's an opportunity can also be a risk. And how it's about how we navigate that. I think it's about who we talk to to understand that and how we continually think critically and step back and 
understand and learn more and more as we go forward. Yeah. You know, AI ethics is such a deep and rich topic. It can be challenging to find the right path in. But what you mentioned earlier is one specific part of AI ethics that we've had quite a bit of discussion about lately, which is bias. It's a topic that fascinates me. From your point of view, what is the real risk of bias? Like, how do we go about combating bias, let's say, in AI? The risk is that our biases or biases in data are then just fed into the machine learning model. And the model that comes out of that will then carry those biases. So um, I know there's been some examples in that we've seen where this has happened. Uh, and what comes out is perhaps, uh, say it's a predictive model, it may be predicting for one particular population group accurately and less so for another. So that population group isn't really being picked up in that data set. Um, it might be gender bias that comes through. It could be any kind of bias you can think about that exists in people and how we collect data can then, of course, then be in the model. So that's a risk because then we might take that and apply it, but we're applying a biased model and not realizing that. How to combat it, I think, is multi-layered. Um, I feel like, I've, okay, so there's there's frameworks that exist, principles that exist that we can look to as signposts for the kinds of things to look out for when you're building a machine learning model or AI. What we need now, I think, is to bring those down into more practical examples for people. So high-level principles are maybe you know, a useful place to start, but that's not necessarily going to translate easily to the person who is sitting there building the model. So I think we need to work on ca detailed cases with people to help them understand how they can be more conscious of bias. And also it's about a, a process of um, becoming more aware of our own biases. And then so that then that is something that's on our mind when we're looking at a data set or when we're building a machine learning model. And I think combating it would involve bringing people in from multidiscipline across disciplines. So you would need to work with um, people who have lived experience of the data that you're dealing with. Also, you would want to talk to, it goes without saying that the technological people would be involved, but then I think in addition to that, you would bring in sociologists or ethicists, um, philosophers. You know, I feel like to combat it, you actually need all those viewpoints working together. The um, social scientists have just as much of a role, if not more, because they're probably grappling with those questions more as part of their daily work. And that's why I think it's, it's important to for people who've worked in the social space like you do and we have to be involved in data because we're going to be looking at it through slightly different lens than somebody who has more of a purely technological focus. The, the tech side is um, vitally important to be a voice then in the room too, because they're going to understand how how, how do we actually make the adjustments practically to have a less biased model, which um, you know wouldn't be something that a sociologist would would understand? So I think combating it is definitely working together, getting practical, and helping people have a lens and a way through which they operate on a daily basis that takes into account an awareness of bias and and how to work through that. When I go about thinking about ML models and releasing those models into the world, there always seems to be a moment in the pipeline at which the action, if you like, the impact makes the leap from the model and what it produces as an output into, you know, something that's actualized or a decision that's made in the world. And there, it seems like the risk might be in where the model or the machine is, is permitted to make a decision on its own without human oversight. Like famously, we've seen a couple of instances where 
the self-driving car technology, for example, the question is asked, the car made the decision, Mm-mm. who's to blame? What are your thoughts on that and how we go about preserving, for example, accountability and responsibility? Yeah, that's a huge question. And I've th- I know that car example that you're talking about and I've thought about it from multiple perspectives. I'm not sure I've landed on a pithy answer. I feel that we need to be retaining accountability to a fairly high degree because we are building the models. You know, they're not building themselves. So there's great power in that and great potential. How that is maintained practically as AI gets more and more advanced and able to make decisions in absence of us, I'm not sure in terms of how you then draw those lines back to who's accountable if something goes wrong. But I feel like probably going into it with a mindset of feeling that the people involved are accountable is probably a good place to start because then you're potentially looking out in how you build it for more of those unintended consequences if you're holding a sense of responsibility for then how that impacts on the world. I also think there's a learning process here, like with any new or innovative space or technology. I think one of our best ways potentially to manage that risk is to be in constant learning loops. So when you release something out into the, the world, it's that's not then done and we move on. It's staying engaged with that. It's adjusting it as it needs to be adjusted. And I also think that if we're accountable, if we want to be accountable for creating the best technology possible, and I've said this a lot of times, but I do think engaging multiple perspectives helps mitigate some of those risks down the track. And the more people that can be involved ahead of releasing that technology in understanding and and how it might then act and how that would affect people, I think is important. Yeah, I feel like um, it's certainly a debate for, I think, greater greater minds than mine. (laughs) But I just think we need to, accountability, I would say, is something we should hold close um, at at this point and realise that there are humans behind this technology, even if it makes decisions on its own later and not to divest ourselves from that line that's there. Yeah, so interesting, Tamsin. And, you know, you did a great job of explaining it. Uh, I'm curious, and you spoke about this, you touched on it around bringing together the people to ask questions Mm. and that social scientists will have the questions to ask. And it occurs to me that, you know, it really starts there because you're setting the direction for how you want the data science or uh, the models and technologies to answer those questions. So what's your view on question science? Mm. Um, well, um, I do believe that questions is really the most important thing that anyone can be can be doing and and then holding how, so, and I've heard you speak about this on previous episodes, asking simple questions, for example, and how you formulate the question to then, is going to impact the answer that you get. And I feel like that is very um, important. So again, I have a particular worldview, I have a particular cultural background, I have a particular experience. The question I might think to ask might not even be the, the right question, the best question. So I feel like it's, again, it, bringing multiple perspectives into the question formulation as well is hugely important. And really, I suppose, in a structured and conscious way, drilling down to what is that question that we really want to ask? And then how will that question be interpreted? So sometimes I might think I'm asking one question, but someone else hears the same question and thinks it's another thing. So if it's for a particular project or a particular piece of work, I I suppose getting consensus from the key stakeholders on what the question is that we want to ask. And then looking at once we ask that question, what information starts coming back? And do we need to, is that telling us about whether the question was actually the right question? 
question or not. So I think sometimes it's not until you've even asked it that you actually know if it's the right question. Like it, you've got to evolve it. So I think it's that iterative uh, approach again. So ask the questions, adjust it if necessarily, re-ask it, realize that you asked the wrong question or you could ask it in a better way. And also look at what are you learning that's maybe not what you thought you'd learn as a result of asking that question as well. And then using that information too as valuable. And are there any questions we just shouldn't ask? I suppose this would come down to having an underlying set of principles or values that you're operating off and then assessing whether the questions that you're asking are in alignment with those values and principles. I think it's important to agree on those things and then determine from there whether there'd be questions that you shouldn't ask or not. Questions that have been asked by machine learning and AI have actually reinforced a negative outcome for particular populations. Yeah, so I think that's what I was getting at. And I didn't want to name a specific question because um, I was thinking it's probably broader than that. So it's it's having a system in place where you are actually looking at those questions and seeing if you can anticipate outcomes that would be negative from that. And I think that's an important process to go and it's, I would say, extremely common for in any line of work for an action to have unintended negative outcomes um, and in our space, potentially disadvantaging people further, etc. And uh, there are lots of stories uh, that I hope we'll be able to unearth over time around when we do ask the question with data science and realise actually what we have been doing, either in policy or in development of programs, is in fact harmful. Mm. Yes, yes. And I think that that's one of the potentials that is extremely valuable about data science because we're not always good at understanding without evidence or science what the impacts are and whether the, what, what we think is causing a change could be completely different to what actually is. And there's definitely potential in changing our practice as a result of what we've learned through using data and data science in, in this space and improving that practice for sure. And I, uh, yeah, I think it's an important standpoint to have is to always be humble, I guess, in what we're doing. And uh, it's not easy to look at ourselves and realize something that we were doing maybe in completely good faith in terms of an approach to change or something is actually not having the good benefit that we believed. So it's being able to hold that feeling of being wrong <laughs> and work with that and not not be um, so resistant to that that we would keep on going in the same vein when we've learned something else would, would work better. It can be a difficult thing to let go of. Hugely. The idea of uh, being wrong. Yeah. Uh, coming back to to, um, coming back to your transition into data science, because this is something that I think a lot of people will be really interested to do if only they could find the courage or the confidence to be able to do it. What kind of a foundation were you building on to make that transition? And what have you done to learn about more? What kind of resources have you found or, or tools and techniques that you've been looking into? Yeah, sure. So first of all, it, it, it started, as I said, being the fact that I was ex getting exposure to technologies that I hadn't worked with before through the work that we did together. And then I found that I had a great interest for it. Um, I don't have a strong technical background. So I've, I explored then what, uh, I guess, the full scope of the data science landscape. And I started to talk to people who already work in that field. I started to look at what sort of skills might be needed and whether I could find, whether there would be a 
place for me. I also, so in terms of what resources, it was kind of through talking to people, people referred me to articles or YouTube channels or, and then I researched university courses. So I then started doing a graduate certificate in data science. And that was a way for me to get a bit more familiar with the nuts and bolts tech that I wasn't so familiar with and also test where my interest is. So data science is a massive field. And I knew that I was fascinated by it, interested in it. I didn't quite know where in that big landscape I wanted to go. So I kind of just started doing stuff. So I thought, oh, okay, enroll, you know, enroll in something, see if I like coding. I was like, yeah, it's okay. I like its potential. Am I going to be the world's best coder? Is that my future? No. I know I know that now. <laughs> Is it good to have an understanding of that so that I can work more effectively with people who are excellent coders? Yes. Do I enjoy tinkering with it? Yes. But it's not, I'm not, I don't feel that I've want to invest the time that it would take. And I don't think that's where my particular, you know, I think I would never be the best in that. But are there areas like that translation between the tech and the client or the community? I, I have had to do a bit of that and I like it. And it seems that I'm kind of good at it. So it's kind of just looking at how people respond to what you do, what I'm interested in, talking to people, learning, just watching documentaries to see which areas I feel more drawn to. Um, yeah, starting that graduate certificate, even though I wasn't sure if I'd even have the capability to work at that level of tech and then figuring out that, yes, I can, I can do it, but I don't think it's my niche. I think my niche is in the relationships, the concepts, the translation between the working with clients, the project management, the data ethics, the big questions. And then I just looked for recommendations from people who they trusted about what companies might be working in that space or what organizations might be working in that space and just kept an eye out on that until a role came up that I thought maybe would, you know, I felt would be potentially a good match. And then I think there is, um, I think with any change, like you mentioned, just having the courage, I think that's a big part of it. It's like just testing. So you don't really know until you test. Like I said, you don't really know what you're interested in or where you might have a talent or where there might be a niche where people need what you have unless you test. And that means exposing yourself to potentially being rejected. And it's just a process, I guess, of testing and seeing what sticks and what doesn't and not holding back so long until you've got 110% of whatever criteria you think are needed before you have a crack. So I just kind of had the mentality of I would just test a little bit where this might go. And yeah, I've just been very fortunate, I think, to find something I'm deeply passionate about and that I have relevant skills in and that there's opportunities in at the moment. Tamsin, thank you so much for coming on The Foil. Really appreciate you coming and having a chat with us. We've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and um, we'll be following your progress in the field of data science very closely. Looking forward to having more conversations about it again in the not too distant future thank you both it's been a pleasure to be here really excited for your future Tamsin thanks so much for your time thank you thank you so much for joining us we hope you've enjoyed the conversation this is Christy and this is Adam on the Foil podcast check us out on www.thefoil.ai and follow us on all the socials Share this podcast out to anyone you think might be interested in what we, our guests, have to say. Let them know what we've got coming up. See you next time.